This podcast may contain unsuitable language, depictions of adult themes, and content of a violent and distressing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Trials, Episode 1, a show that focuses on telling the stories behind the crimes as they work their way through our criminal justice system, from tragedy to verdict. In today's episode, we look into the events that would cause a young mother to emotionally distance herself from her own child, resulting in the ultimate tragedy. We have all seen those touching cinematic moments when a mother instantaneously bonds with her child for the first time. It seems so gentle and effortless. However, the science behind those moments can sometimes be complex. Oxytocin is the hormone released in women during childbirth, which is sometimes called the cuddle hormone. It signals a mother's brain to feel loving and nurturing towards her baby. Yet sometimes, outside factors, including various forms of postpartum depression, can prevent this secure attachment from happening right away, or even at all. Up to 20% of new moms may not feel any emotional attachment towards their baby for weeks or even months after their baby's birth. When they don't kick in at all, the outcome can be deadly. In today's episode, we will look into a case of a young mother who not only lacked social support, she herself never developed a secure emotional attachment with her own mother. Could this have been the root cause of a profound tragedy just five years later? 21-year-old Kelsey Thomas was a young and overwhelmed mother of two children, a two-year-old boy named Phoenix and a five-year-old little girl she named Chloe, a child she had from a previous relationship when she was just 15 years old. This would be a lot to deal with even under ideal circumstances. Unfortunately. Kelsey's life was less than ideal. In addition to being the primary caregiver for her two young children, Kelsey worked a full-time job and was also caring for her ill father, who was undergoing cancer treatments. On the morning of July 19, 2018, Kelsey had left the home she shared with her husband and two young children to run an errand and to take her father to a medical appointment. As expected, she took two-year-old Phoenix with her that morning. However, she purposely left her five-year-old daughter, Chloe, behind. She gave Chloe strict instructions not to make any noise, and most importantly, not to leave her room under any circumstances. Kelsey felt that Chloe had been acting out recently, and because of Chloe's alleged misbehavior, Kelsey didn't have the desire to bring her along. It was an intentional decision she later admitted was made out of anger and frustration. When Kelsey returned home around noon, she found Chloe sitting on the couch, watching TV. When asked why she had left her room, Chloe stated she was bored, lonely, and hungry. Kelsey didn't believe any of those reasons justified Chloe's decision to disobey her strict instructions. This was just further proof that Chloe intentionally disobeyed Kelsey out of spitefulness. Kelsey personalized and internalized Chloe's acts of disobedience. 
never considering that Chloe might be exhibiting normal, age-appropriate behavior for a child trying to gain her mother's attention, even if that attention was negative. It didn't occur to Kelsey that most five-year-olds left alone for hours would eventually disobey strict instructions to stay in their rooms without food and water. To Kelsey, it was another example of Chloe's willful disobedience. This latest act of defiance easily triggered Kelsey's growing anger and resentment towards her daughter. On top of her normal stress, Kelsey was also very tired that day and emotionally drained from her father's health crisis. She was hoping to take a two-hour nap before she had to leave for her evening job. Her husband, Aaron Thomas, would usually leave for his overnight shift, just as Kelsey was getting home. The young couple were only seeing each other as they passed between shifts. Aaron would return from work in the early morning, sleep until early afternoon, and instead of helping Kelsey with the children, he would instead find an excuse to be away. Kelsey felt like she never got a break from caring for others, and as a result, her resentment for her husband and Chloe were building by the day. Kelsey lacked a healthy outlet for her growing frustration, and her pleas for help were falling on deaf ears. She desperately needed a break, which never seemed to come. Due to the tremendous amount of stress she was under, Kelsey began to fixate on Chloe being the cause of all of her problems. If only she could relieve herself of that extra burden. In what she would later describe as a cry for help, Kelsey did something that most mothers couldn't fathom. She asked her own mother to take over Chloe's care and permanently raise her. However, Kelsey's mother dismissed the request immediately and later would say she never took it seriously. Did you ever have a conversation with Kelsey specifically about Chloe coming to live with you? Yes. When did that conversation take place? Like a year prior to the... So would that be about a year prior to Chloe's death? Yes. So approximately two or so years ago. Yeah. And... Was that conversation in person or over the phone? Over the phone. What did Kelsey ask you during that conversation or say to you? She pretty much told me to take Chloe. And what was your response? I said, no, you would miss her too much. And why did you say that? I would miss her. Kelsey had been serious. And in her mind... This was just another failure from her own mother to render assistance. Without any support from her family, and little relief in sight, Kelsey's days began to feel like they were on repeat. The only bright spot in Kelsey's day happened when her and her children took a daily two-hour nap. So after discovering that Chloe once again had disobeyed her instructions, Kelsey quietly seethed until it was time for her daily reprieve. All Kelsey's exhausted mind could think about was rest. She knew she had to be at work by 4.30 p.m. that day, so the quicker she got the children sleeping, the quicker she could take her own, desperately needed, nap. After dealing with Chloe's punishment, she prepared a messy meal of ravioli for lunch. 
Once the children were done eating, she hurriedly gave Phoenix a bath and told Chloe to clean herself up while she put Phoenix down. When she returned, she discovered that once again, Chloe hadn't followed her instructions. Instead of cleaning herself up, Chloe was once again purposely being disobedient. She had been playing in the bathroom, got distracted, and allowed the sink to overflow, causing a large mess. This only added to Kelsey's frustrations with her daughter, and further delayed her rest. After cleaning the mess, she put Chloe in her room and told her she didn't have to sleep, but she couldn't make any noise, and most importantly, Chloe couldn't come out of her room for any reason. According to Kelsey, Chloe seemed scared and promised to cooperate. However, a few minutes later, Chloe opened her bedroom door, and in an act of defiance, she exited her room. Kelsey was livid, and threw Chloe on her bed, pushed down on her chest in a threatening manner, and gave her the ominous warning that if she came out again, she would spank her butt. As she left Chloe's room again, she noticed Chloe's eyes had gotten really big. She could tell Chloe was scared and believed she would definitely listen this time. Kelsey hated getting that upset with her daughter, but felt that Chloe did it on purpose to make her life more difficult. Again, Kelsey consistently internalized Chloe's childish behavior as an intentional act meant to make her life more difficult. Whether true or not, Kelsey believed Chloe's willful acts of disobedience were planned and calculated to prevent Kelsey from her desperate need for rest. Her resentment for Chloe had started before she was born and continued every day that she lived. However, Chloe wasn't the only person in her life whom she resented. Kelsey was suffering from insomnia and depression and operated in a state of permanent exhaustion. This caused her to have shortened patience and heightened frustration. Her sleep deprivation led to feelings of paranoia that both Chloe and her husband were trying to make her life more difficult. She was also very resentful that her husband Aaron was allowed to work, rest, and spend time away from their family and away from his responsibilities. Lately, they had begun fighting over Aaron's lack of help and Kelsey's jealousy over his perceived freedom. Kelsey felt like he was allowed to come and go as he pleased, without the added burden of caring for two children or an ailing parent. That day, Kelsey had hoped to get in a two-hour nap before her alarm was set to go off at 3.15 p.m. This gave her plenty of time to get to work. At 3.17 p.m., she called her husband, Aaron, in a rage, demanding he return home by 3.30 so she would be able to get ready for her shift, which began at 4.30 p.m. After the angry phone call with Aaron, Kelsey exchanged a few text messages with her grandmother, Jody, expressing frustration over Chloe's continued disobedience and Aaron's lack of help. Next, she went to wake up Phoenix, and with him by her side, she entered Chloe's room, intending to wake her up, too. As she entered, she noticed Chloe was no longer in bed. She found Chloe in her closet, hanging suspended from the closet rod by a pair of pajama pants. Her face was purple, and her eyes had a fixed stare. 
When Kelsey called her name, Chloe was unresponsive. She reacted quickly and grabbed Chloe out of instinct. She wasn't paying attention to details, but believed the knot came loose and the pajama pants were carried with Chloe when Kelsey placed her on the bed. She checked Chloe's airway and noticed there was vomit left over from lunch in Chloe's mouth. She cleared the airway but didn't know how to perform CPR. At 3.22pm, she called Aaron a second time, screaming. Aaron was only a few minutes away when a hysterical Kelsey told him that Chloe wasn't breathing and she had called for an ambulance. When I received the second phone call, I was at Five Corners by McDonald's. So what if, were you on your way back from the car wash? Yes. And where were you going to? I was going to our home on James. And that second call was that from, who was that from? Kelsey. And what, um, what, if anything, did Kelsey say during that phone call? From what I can recall, um, she was very upset. Um, the only thing I remember hearing on that phone call was Chloe's not breathing. And at that point, I threw the phone in the seat next to me and went as fast as I could home. Did you then go home to your house, um, James? Yes. And when you arrived there, what did you observe? When I went to turn on the street, there was about half a dozen squad cars, um, two fire trucks and an ambulance, loads of people. As Aaron approached his home, he saw police cars, an ambulance, and a fire truck. He looked inside the ambulance and noticed they were working on Chloe's lifeless body, giving her CPR. As he walked into the house, he saw Phoenix being held by Kelsey as she spoke to police officers. She was telling Sergeant Siren that Chloe would often play in her closet and build forts with sheets and clothing. There was a chair in the closet, which led authorities to believe that Chloe might have spent a lot of time there, possibly as a punishment, rather than a place of play. Later, when they were told that Chloe hadn't survived, Aaron thought Kelsey was acting strangely and chalked it up to the tragic circumstances. Uh, do you recall um, her demeanor, Kelsey's demeanor, when she was speaking with them? Um, it was very... It was very odd to me. I didn't understand... why she had the demeanor after she just had lost a child, so... It didn't, it didn't seem normal to me. And at some point, you talk, talked to the police about you, where you were that day um, and the events leading up to Chloe's death. Correct. Do you remember how, how many hours you talked to them? Uh, roughly seven hours. Kelsey continued giving her version of events at the house, the hospital, and later at the police station. Aaron believed something was off with her demeanor, and he recalled hoping she was telling the truth. However, in the back of his mind, he began having dark thoughts about what might have really happened to Chloe that day. 
Kelsey explained to investigators that she believed Chloe hadn't been napping as she had been told, but instead was playing in her closet and trying to make a makeshift swing. She believed Chloe had tied a knot around the hanging dowel, intending to use it as a swing, but possibly slipped, striking her head and landing perfectly inside the swing which had tightened into a noose, causing Chloe to hang herself between the crotch area of the pajama pants. Kelsey consistently described an improbable event to law enforcement. She alleged when she picked Chloe up, the pants loosened on their own and fell away. Somehow they came to land on the bed next to Chloe's body, where they would later be photographed and collected as evidence. A few days later, when the investigating officer checked the closet, they searched for signs of a swinging child, or even a child caught in a noose. There weren't any scuff marks on the walls, and the items hanging still had a uniformity that didn't explain how or where a child would be able to tie something without moving some of the hanging items. Additionally, the other items in the closet didn't look like they had been disturbed by a child struggling inside of an accidental noose. The officer who had given Kelsey and Aaron a ride to the hospital believed Kelsey was showing the appropriate amount of emotion for a young mother who had just lost a child. In fact, the police officer on the scene that tragic day recalled giving Aaron and Kelsey a ride to the hospital. He recalled Aaron trying to comfort her as she cried hysterically. He remembered that once they arrived at the hospital, she was still in a state of shock. They had another brief discussion with an investigator before they were given the horrific news of Chloe's fate that day. Kelsey was told that Chloe had succumbed to her injuries and was pronounced dead upon arrival. Kelsey and Aaron were told to go home and that they would be contacted in the event that law enforcement had any follow-up questions. As they left that day, Kelsey believed the ordeal was over. Investigators gave her the impression that the entire event was an accidental death. All she wanted to do was grieve the death of her daughter in peace and quiet. She had no intention of telling anyone about Chloe's death, as she didn't believe it was any of their business. Unbeknownst to Kelsey, the story of Chloe's death had made the news. The next night, she received a phone call from her mother. Now on July 19th, 2018, did you find out about Chloe's death? Yes. How did you find out about Chloe's death? One of Kelsey's ex-boyfriends called me. Around what time was it that you got a call? Yeah, I think it was a little after 8 o'clock. On that day, did Kelsey try to reach out to you in any way? No. What did you do after you talked to that boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend? I called Kelsey. And around what time was it that you called Kelsey? It would have been between 8 and 8.30. her what she was doing and she said she was eating and I said how's Chloe and she said how did you find out and that was her response when you asked about Chloe yes. Caladra Cookett who went by Callie adored her granddaughter 
Chloe Chandler. After speaking to Kelsey, she was shocked by her daughter's cold demeanor, and she was angry that Kelsey didn't call her immediately to inform her of Chloe's death. Callie was instantly suspicious and thought Kelsey harmed her child on purpose. As a result, she called law enforcement that same night to request that they investigate Kelsey for her granddaughter's murder. Kelsey's mother informed the investigators that Kelsey was an emotionally distant mother to Chloe. She told them the story of Kelsey asking her to raise Chloe a few months earlier. However, later at trial, Callie would change her story and say it was one year prior to Chloe's death. Investigators believed the discrepancy was because Kelsey had asked her mother more than once to raise her daughter for her. Callie also told them that Kelsey never wanted Chloe. Callie alleged that because Chloe had such a strong physical resemblance to her father, that it caused Kelsey to resent her own daughter. Chloe's father had cheated on Kelsey when she was a new mother, and Kelsey held a lot of resentment towards her ex. He also didn't visit Chloe, nor did he contribute financially to her upbringing. According to Callie, Kelsey allegedly told her mother that looking into Chloe's eyes was a daily reminder of someone she hated. Callie told investigators that Kelsey was only interested in her son Phoenix and gave him all of her attention, while she resented and ignored Chloe. Sadly, this was a cycle that was repeating itself, as Kelsey and Callie never had a close mother-daughter relationship either. What was Chloe and Kelsey's relationship like? What did you observe? <clears throat> Typical mother-daughter relationship. After Phoenix was born, did you notice anything different? Yes. What did you notice? That she didn't really pay very much attention to Chloe. And what do you mean by that? She paid more attention and did things for Phoenix. Did you ever go to any parties or family parties after Chloe, I'm sorry, after Phoenix was born? Yes. Did you make any particular observations um, that happened at any of those family parties? Yes. What did you observe? We were at a birthday party at my niece's house, and nobody was paying attention to where Chloe was until we realized she was down by the pond. And did that seem unusual to you? Yes. When was that birthday party? Do you remember when it was in relation to Chloe's death? A month before that. Did you ever make any observations about how Phoenix or Chloe were dressed? Anything about their clothes? No. Did you ever have any conversations with Kelsey about Chloe? Yes. What kind of things did you talk about relating to Chloe? She would be having a hard time getting Chloe to listen. And I just told her to try to spend as much time as she could with her. Kelsey's obvious favoritism for her son compared to her daughter was glaring in its disparity. Callie felt like Chloe's alleged defiance was due to Kelsey's neglect. Later, it would be discovered that Callie was allegedly guilty of the same type of emotional neglect that she observed between her daughter and granddaughter. Kelsey was one of three children who were all raised by their father 
Larry Matthews. Kelsey had an older brother, close in age, and a younger brother who was eight years younger than herself. While growing up, Kelsey's mother drifted in and out of her life. She was never a consistent or present parent. When she was around, she wasn't emotionally available to her only daughter. The first ten years of Kelsey's life, her mother lived in the same town, yet rarely came to see her. In fact, from birth to the age of ten, Callie only saw Kelsey a handful of times. As a result, the two had a complicated relationship with feelings of ambivalence for Kelsey. As a young girl, Kelsey yearned for a closer relationship with her mother. However, when they were together, it often ended badly with the exchange of harsh words. When they did manage to spend time together, Kelsey felt like Callie was emotionally unavailable and wasn't warm or nurturing in the ways that Kelsey longed for. Instead, Callie's presence only served to reinforce her feelings of rejection and abandonment during her formative years in a home filled with only males. As a teenager, Kelsey's mother remarried and moved two and a half hours away. Due to the move, when Callie did visit, it was usually infrequent and sporadic, which furthered the growing divide with their mother-daughter bond. To Kelsey, it appeared that Callie was only interested in visiting Kelsey's younger brother. This would be a dynamic that Callie would recognize in Kelsey, but never made the connection that it was a mirror image of the relationship Callie had with her own children when they were growing up. Without a sense of irony, Callie was able to describe to authorities that Kelsey favored her two-year-old son, Phoenix. Callie failed to see the same parallels in her own complicated relationship with her only daughter. Back when Kelsey was a young girl and her mother would come for visits, Callie would spend no more than 30 minutes with Kelsey while she would spend the entire weekend with Kelsey's younger brother. Neither seemed to notice that a decade later, that Kelsey was replicating the same unhealthy dynamic between herself and her own son and daughter. Giving all of her time and attention to Phoenix while emotionally neglecting Chloe, who desperately wanted her mother's attention. Making matters more difficult, Kelsey was just 15 years old when she became pregnant with Chloe, a child she neither wanted nor was emotionally mature enough to raise. From the start, Kelsey saw Chloe as an obstacle in her life, while her friends were out having fun, living a carefree existence. Kelsey was raising Chloe alone while also helping her father to raise her little brother. Kelsey felt like her life was unfairly difficult, often lamenting at the easier lives of her peers. As a result, Kelsey was repeating the unhealthy relationship that had been modeled for her. Consequently, she was incapable of developing a natural emotional bond with her own young daughter. But it wasn't only her mother who felt like Kelsey may have harmed her daughter. As soon as Brittany Johnson, Kelsey's cousin, learned about Chloe's death, she too instinctively felt like something was wrong. She immediately had a feeling that Kelsey had harmed her own child. She was so sure of it that she too contacted law enforcement as soon as she found out. Just like Kelsey's mother, her cousin also requested that investigators look into Chloe's death. In fact, Brittany offered to wear a wire and question her cousin about Chloe. She was convinced that Kelsey would say something incriminating. 
She had loved Chloe, and she was determined to help law enforcement build a case against her cousin. Why did you drive to the police station? Because of the interaction that I had experienced between her and her child once her second child was born. And as a mother of three daughters, if my daughter was deceased, my mother and my entire family would, they would be aware and I would not be able to, to function. And this wasn't what was going on. Did you go to the Atomo Police Department? Yes. And did you talk to officers? Yes. And did you suggest anything to them? Yes. Um, they weren't willing to give me a lot of information, clearly, because it was still an investigation, even though it was reported an accident. And I did not believe that it was an accident after I had watched what was transpired, so I asked to be wired. I'm sorry. Okay. After you spoke to them, did you decide, or did you ask them if you could wear a wire or a device? To yes, I did. And was that your idea? Yes, that was my idea. And were you then, um, did the police in any way persuade you to do that? Never, not at any point. Were you then equipped with um, with some type of audio um, and some type of videos uh, equipment so that you could go talk to Kelsey? Yes. Did you then, in fact, go talk with Kelsey? Yes. She and Kelsey were very close growing up, but as adults only saw each other at family functions eight to ten times per year. When she did see her cousin, she noticed that Chloe was neglected and tried to give her as much extra attention as she could. She was always disturbed by the disparity in Kelsey's treatment of Phoenix and Chloe. Once Brittany arrived at Chloe's house, she noticed the relaxed atmosphere. What did you observe about Kelsey at that time? That she was not upset. Did you then proceed to have a conversation with those individuals? Yes. What, did you stay then at that residence, or did you go somewhere else? Um, I, was, I did stay at that residence. I asked where Phoenix, her other child, was, and asked to be taken to Phoenix so that I could take care of him. And did you and Chloe come to the agreement that you were going to watch Phoenix for a day or two while they took care of things? Kelsey and I did come to the agreement that I would take care of Phoenix uh, while she took care of things. Did you and Kelsey then go anywhere? We drove to a residence, which I believe was a friend of hers that had Phoenix at that time. And on your way to pick up Phoenix, was it just you and Kelsey in the car? Yes. When Brittany learned that Phoenix was being taken care of by friends, her concern switched to him. With Chloe gone, she worried he might be in danger next. Kelsey agreed to allow Brittany to take Phoenix for a few days. Alone in the car, on the way to pick up Phoenix, she used the opportunity to question Kelsey about Chloe's death. Specifically, did you and Kelsey talk about Chloe um, and her behavior prior to her death? Yes. And what did Kelsey tell you? Um, she explained things that were odd that Chloe reminded her of her father, that she would get out of hand, that she would make her upset, things that a grieving mother wouldn't normally, in my opinion, express. Did she tell you anything about Chloe's attitude? That she was not very controllable, that she got on her nerves, 
things about nature. And during that conversation, did she say anything to you about how it was sometimes hard to look at Chloe because she looked like Stephen? Yes, she said that she could not look at her because she reminded her of her father. She continued to press Kelsey for details of Chloe's death and was stunned by her lack of emotion and irritation regarding the police interest in the case. Apparently, Kelsey was livid that authorities allowed the news to report on Chloe's death, as Kelsey didn't want her family notified until she was ready to tell them in her own time. Brittany was struck by the fact that Kelsey seemed more emotional about law enforcement's request for another interview, rather than Chloe's death. When Kelsey left the hospital, she was under the impression that Chloe's death was considered an accident, and her communication with investigators was over. She couldn't have been more wrong. Did you continue to talk about what happened the day previously with Chloe? Yes. Did you ask her what had happened? I did ask her um, how did Kelsey tell She said that she must have accidentally hung herself, and she proceeded to explain how she thought it happened. But during that time, I had asked to enter the residence once we had parked, and she told me that she wouldn't go back in because she had just watched her daughter die. And then did she then, after she said that, then say, well, not really die, but I found her? She did. She corrected herself. Did you, during that conversation, did you talk about the fact that the police were investigating what had happened? I did. And what, if anything, did Kelsey say regarding that? Um, that she thought she was going to be okay. Was, did she give you any indication about whether or not um, she was happy that the police were investigating what happened? No, she was not happy that the police were investigating what was happening. When she pressed Kelsey for details, Kelsey explained that Chloe, as usual, wasn't listening to her wouldn't take a nap, and had accidentally hung herself. Brittany continued to press Kelsey, and she explained that Chloe was trying to build a swing inside of her closet using the closet rod and her pajama pants. Chloe allegedly made a loop that caught around her neck. She told Brittany that she didn't want to discuss it, because it was upsetting having to watch her daughter die in front of her own eyes. Law enforcement believed this was an admission of guilt, that Kelsey had been present for Chloe's death, and it was far more sinister than she had originally explained. Brittany left that day with Phoenix, convinced her cousin had killed her own daughter, and determined not to allow her to get away with it. The next day, Kelsey showed up to her interview with law enforcement in a combative mood. She was insulted that authorities were investigating Chloe's death, and accused them of trying to get Kelsey to admit to hurting Chloe, or put damning words into her mouth. Detective Siren had attended Chloe's autopsy the day before, and didn't believe that Chloe's injuries matched up with Kelsey's story. They explained that the medical examiner's report showed that Chloe had been strangled, rather than hung. Although the actual findings at that stage were indicative of both a hanging or a manual strangulation, both scenarios were indistinguishable by the medical examiner. 
Detective Searin had talked to the responding officers for some background on the case, and Chief McAndrew believed that Kelsey's emotional response was normal for someone experiencing such a horrific trauma as finding their dead child. But other responding officers felt differently. Kelsey was interviewed over several days. However, in court, both sides stipulated that only three hours of Kelsey's interviews over two of the interrogation days would be played in court. The audio was so difficult to understand, the prosecutor couldn't even provide a script for jurors to follow along, which is usually a common procedure when playing audio to a jury. Because the audio was unintelligible, after each clip played, the prosecution would ask Detective Siren to discuss the content of their conversation. He made it clear to the jury that both interviews were voluntary, and Kelsey was regularly told she was allowed to leave at any time. After playing the first two clips of Kelsey's interrogation, Detective Siren explained how he was boxing Kelsey into a story so he could compare and contrast it with the physical findings during the autopsy and on the day that Chloe died. He asked Kelsey why there were no signs that Chloe had been in the closet, but she had no answer. He told her that there was no vomit in the closet, despite both the paramedics and Kelsey both reporting finding vomit in Chloe's airway. There was also vomit on the bed, along with Chloe's pajama bottoms. Detective Siren was skeptical that a child could tie a knot strong enough to hold her weight and hang herself. And if she did, he found it unlikely. The knot would just fall away when Kelsey described lifting her out of the closet. Callie, Kelsey's mother, testified that Chloe insisted on tying her own shoes, but they would become untied repeatedly. The prosecution felt this was proof that Chloe couldn't tie a knot sufficient enough to hang herself. With these inconsistencies, Detective Siren slowly began confronting Kelsey by using an investigative technique he called a cognitive-style interview. He explained that this meant he was looking for information and clarifying statements. It is described by some as going into the interview with the knowledge your subject is likely guilty. As the interview progresses, the interrogator slowly builds rapport and systematically removes obstacles which might prevent a suspect from allowing themselves to confess. In the room with him was DCI Special Agent Don Schnitzer, who was an Iowa state officer usually called in for major crimes. He, too, attended the autopsy of Chloe Chandler and became the primary interrogator during Kelsey's interview. He used several techniques to determine whether she was remembering events or telling a made-up story. Um, after that interview uh, is done and we get a, an initial statement, uh, we may provide uh, stories or, or statements that are similar to their situation as a rationalization for their actions. Um, we're also looking for a response from their statements to see how they react to additional questions or how they react when we ask them to tell us the chain of events in a different order or if we ask them to provide the entire story in reverse order we're looking to see if, if it's factual or if it's the truth those statements should stay the same um, if there's great differences in her the in interviewee's statement then we're looking for why are there inconsistencies during the interview with kelsey 
He noticed right away that she seemed frustrated and agitated with the entire concept of needing to be interviewed. She didn't feel like there was anything more to discuss, since Chloe's death was an accident. He had her start from the beginning, many times during the first interview, which lasted five and a half hours. The point of the initial interview was to lock down her story. At the end of the interview, despite being angry and upset with investigators, she agreed to come back the next day for another interview. Again, they told her she wasn't under arrest. However, they were more confrontational. The style for the second interview was called a presumptive interrogation, where they went in with the knowledge that she had killed Chloe and they intended to slowly lead her to telling a story that was more consistent with their presumption. Again, the sound quality was so difficult to understand that after the prosecutor played it for the jury, Special Agent Schnitzer would briefly describe what was discussed. They only played the last three hours of the second day's interview, which was nine hours in total. Several times during the interview, Kelsey grabbed her keys and threatened to leave, telling them they were pissing her off. However, it was then when he noticed the first significant shift in her story. What was your understanding of Kelsey Thomas's description, how she left in that morning, July 19th? Early on, it was um, <laughs> Chloe was sleeping, and she took Phoenix to uh, the store and left her there. And then, I, as you see, kind of the we get our first story shift where um, the story changes. Now Chloe is awake uh, when she leaves, and there's some frustration there with uh, her behavior. Well, what we had to do is we have to compare her story to what we see at the scene. Um, so she's indicating that there's vomit in the mouth. Um, we know that she also stating that she found Chloe hanging in the closet, um, but we didn't see any vomit in the closet. Um, we saw some uh, vomit or uh, what we believe is food stains on the bed. Uh, so for us, we were trying to uh, understand from her words of, I guess, how that happened. And then we would ask questions of uh, trying to gather more detail to see if there's any explanation of why there's an absence of vomit in the closet and why there's, you know, vomit or food stains on the bed. Why was it also important to you to question more about the interactions between Kelsey Thomas and Chloe uh, when Kelsey got back home? Um, Earlier, we kind of had that story shift about, you know, Chloe was awake or Chloe was asleep when they left um, uh, to go to their store. When she returned, um, you know, originally she stated everything was fine and they just wanted to take a nap. And then as we kind of progressed and again asked her to retell the story um, again, uh, there was areas where she said she was frustrated or Chloe was being defiant. Uh, so we wanted to explore that a little further. In the next clip they played, you could see that Kelsey was becoming frustrated and angry with the investigators for their continuing questions. That is when she began to express a desire to leave and at one point even collected her keys. Yet she continued to stay and talk to the investigators. She accused them of trying to get her to confess to something that she didn't do. She expressed her belief that the officers were trying to set her up or elicit a false confession. During the interview, they began slowly boxing her in and insisting they knew that Chloe didn't hang herself. They wouldn't allow her to say Chloe hung herself. Each time she said that, they stopped her and told her the evidence didn't support that statement. 
At one point, Kelsey yells, I didn't touch her that day, in a very angry tone. She stated she couldn't go back in time and accused them of harassing her. Kelsey screamed again, I didn't kill her. I didn't touch her that day. They calmly told her that Chloe didn't die by accident. They began asking how she wants to be seen by others. The investigators told Chloe that the evidence from the autopsy shows that Chloe was strangled. This enraged Kelsey, and she insisted she didn't kill Chloe, and she didn't strangle her, and she told the investigators they were pissing her off. In fact, the preliminary autopsy findings on that day were unable to determine definitively whether Chloe's injuries were from hanging or strangulation. The injuries at that point were consistent with both scenarios. But the investigators continued telling Kelsey that Chloe died by strangulation. They told her that they were glad she was so angry, because this was the first time she had shown any emotion with regard to her daughter's death. They implied her lack of emotion was proof that she had been lying. They told her that her willingness to finally show emotion meant she was finally able to tell them the truth. In fact, they said she wanted to tell the truth, and this was her breakthrough moment. The praise and flattering comments caught Kelsey off guard. They told her this wasn't her fault because she wasn't getting any help from the other people in her life. This was their fault for their lack of help. They agreed with Kelsey that Chloe was a difficult child, and she purposely misbehaved. They told Kelsey that she must have snapped, and this was a better explanation of why things happened the way they did that day. They began rationalizing her snapping and inadvertently killing Chloe. Slowly, Kelsey admitted she had been depressed and told them she had been crying for Chloe, but not in front of investigators. For a moment, Kelsey got very quiet in the interview. She crossed her arms, but she still denied knowing exactly what happened that day. She swore she slept the entire two hours, and Chloe never came out of the room again. They continued limiting her options and making excuses by telling her that they had measured the closet. They also measured the pants and the height of the closet rod against Chloe's height and stated matter-of-factly that Chloe couldn't have hung herself. She never would have been able to reach the closet rod. They kept telling her that life was unfair to her. She was stressed, frustrated, and alone. These factors all led up to her snapping that day. Kelsey got mad again and said she was done and was ready to leave. But instead of leaving, she began to slowly change her story. One small concession at a time. Instead of stating she found Chloe hanging, she changed her story to it looked like Chloe might have been hanging. She also stated she couldn't recall if there were pajama pants around her neck or something else. She seemed unsure of herself and could no longer recall exactly how she found Chloe. Kelsey said she thought maybe Chloe slipped and fell off the chair in her closet. They reminded her that Chloe was strangled, so her slip-and-fall theory didn't match evidence. Kelsey denies snapping and demands they show her the evidence that she killed her daughter. They asked her if she wanted to see pictures of Chloe's dead body. 
Then they told her that this wasn't going away. They told her that her story was slipping, and she couldn't keep her story straight with the facts. They told her they thought she was too rough with Chloe, but didn't realize it when she left to take a nap. They told her she probably hoped that Chloe would wake up from her nap, and she would have found her alive. But that didn't happen. So she made up the story about her hanging from the pajamas because she used those to strangle Chloe. She asked them for physical proof that she, quote, did this to her daughter the way they described. Instead, they told her that maybe it was an accident and to tell them the truth that matches the evidence. Kelsey once again insisted that Chloe's eyes were open when she left her in the room. However, she now admitted that Chloe vomited in the bed before she found her suspended in the closet. Finally, Kelsey admitted she didn't find Chloe suspended in her closet. Instead, she changed her story to match their evidence. She admitted she found Chloe dead in her bed after her nap. The audio became even more difficult to hear. However, it's clear that Kelsey must have agreed with their version of events, admitting to killing Chloe. They asked her if she wanted to write a letter to her family explaining what happened. The purpose of that was to prevent Kelsey from going back on her confession by having it in writing. Kelsey agreed to write the letter, and they gave her a pen and paper and intentionally left her alone in the interrogation room. During this interview, what was your understanding of Chloe's death, how she died? There was an altercation between her and Kelsey. Um, I believe it started uh, in the entryway to her bedroom. Uh, I think there was some, uh, in her words, use of the pajama pants around her neck, uh, possibly causes unconsciousness. Um, and then I think the, uh, as she stated, she placed the child on the bed, and I think the, the assault uh, continued on the bed. Prior to Kelsey noting that, was there any certainty you had as to, at least from the investigations, what may have occurred? I don't think we knew as much what did occur, how uh, the actions uh, and injuries happened to, to Chloe's as much as we did that our belief that what her initial version was wasn't accurate. Was that what informed your, your decisions as you proceeded through this interview? Yes. Now, why challenge her so much when she denied having any involvement with Chloe's death? I would say strong denials like that are common in interviews and interrogations. Um, I don't think I'd be doing my job if I took just a simple, I didn't do it, or I'm not the person responsible as a, uh, like, end of the interview. Uh, it definitely warrants some more continuation and more conversation. Special Agent Schnitzer was focused on the pajama pants because during the autopsy, there was a mark on the back of Chloe's neck which was consistent with the width of Chloe's tangled pants. Later, Kelsey changed her story again and said she used the thin straps on Chloe's shirt to strangle her. But that wasn't consistent with the autopsy findings, so they redirected Kelsey back to stating she used the pajama pants. Later, it would be determined that the mark on the back of Chloe's neck actually came from a small plastic device used during autopsy to hold up Chloe's head. However, her confession, together with her letter, led investigators to believe they finally got the truth from Kelsey. Read that for the jury. 
state's family. I just want to say how terrible, terribly sorry I am right now. I love Chloe so much and never thought anything like this would ever happen. I just wish more of you would have helped me when I asked or tried to get me the help we all know I needed. Please keep her memories alive. Let Phoenix know I love him and that I'm very sorry this happened. I'm sorry I lied to everyone. I was so scared of what I did and what would happen. I don't blame you guys if you never forgive me. I wouldn't either. Love you all so much, Kelsey. In addition to Kelsey's written confession, she also confessed to her husband in a recorded telephone call. It was the defense's contention that investigators led Kelsey to falsely confess, stating that the medical examiner only made a determination of homicide after Kelsey confessed. This was because her injuries were consistent with both a strangulation or a hanging. However, once Kelsey confessed, the medical examiner believed that the evidence best matched Kelsey's second confession by strangulation and not by hanging. One of the reasons for this finding is that Kelsey consistently described leaving Chloe with her eyes opened. The medical examiner called this a death stare that is more consistent with strangulation than hanging. While Kelsey's confession may have been coerced, it doesn't explain why she wrote a letter confessing, nor the phone calls she made to her husband, Aaron Thomas. Hello? Hey. Hey. I love you. I love you too. What is going on? I'm sorry. I take it anytime. Yeah, I know. I know. I kind of know what's going on. But... <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't mean to do it, Aaron. And I really hope you believe me. What do you mean, Kelsey? I didn't mean to hurt her. Please tell me you're not telling me what you think you're telling me. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't. I loved her. I love you and I love Phoenix. No. 
I haven't got that far. Yeah. <clears throat> I just had a little girl's funeral today, Kelsey. I need a, I need a day. Nobody hates you. We just we understand something happened. After the prosecution played the phone calls from Kelsey to Aaron apologizing for killing Chloe, the prosecution rested. The defense called a series of witnesses that described Kelsey as a loving and attentive mother. Chloe's teacher stated that she did know how to tie her shoes and was very proud of that ability. She also testified that Kelsey participated in parent-teacher conferences and also signed up to be a chaperone for a field trip. Can you tell me a little bit about what Chloe was like? I think the best way to describe her is just the little girl that skipped down the hall. She was very excited about being at school, and she just she loved learning new things, and she was excited just to try to make anything new. So very happy kid. Yes. Jill Gardner, Chloe's preschool teacher, said to this day, Chloe was the only child she ever had who could tie her own shoes at four years old. She also stated she was a mandatory reporter and never saw any signs of neglect or abuse. The defense called a forensic pathologist, who, for the most part, agreed with the medical examiner except that he believed the evidence of strangulation versus hanging wasn't as ambiguous. He believed the same evidence skewed more towards hanging, which was consistent with Kelsey's first explanation. His most compelling argument was the fact that Chloe's hyoid bone was intact. The hyoid is a small bone in the neck which is often broken during manual strangulation. Dr. Young believed the state's pathologist used speculation and assumptions to make her final determinations. Neither expert was particularly compelling, and neither were persuasive witnesses. Next, the defense called Brian Cutler, an interrogation and false confession expert. Dr. Cutler believed the investigators were using an interrogation tactic called a presumptive interrogation. He believes this type of interrogation has a high probability of false confession due to its coercive nature. Dr. Cutler, what are minimizing tactics and why are they risk factors for a false confession? Whereas confrontation tactics put pressure on suspects to confess, minimizing tactics uh, essentially make it easier for a suspect uh, to confess. So uh, they include things like appealing to the suspect's uh, self-interest, trying to convince the suspect that he or she is um, its in his or her own best interest to confess, um, downplaying the seriousness uh, of the crime, making it seem like it's, it's not as, as, as heinous or problematic as it is, uh, blaming other people uh, uh, for, for the crime, taking the blame off the suspect, and also uh, providing them justifications uh, for the crime, uh, such as you, 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 you're not a, a, a bad person, you didn't do this deliberately, this was an accident, um, or, um, um, or a, a spur-of-the-moment thing, or 
decision. Those are our justifications. Our research on minimization tactics show that they also increase the risk of false confession. And the mechanism by which they do that, and actually interrogators are trained about this, is that minimization tactics, by offering essentially excuses for having committed the crime, it gets suspects to believe that they will be treated more leniently for confessing than for maintaining their innocence. The investigators consistently used minimizing language during Kelsey's three interrogations. This style, coupled with their aggressive questioning and story contamination by feeding her the evidence, led Kelsey to falsely confess. After Dr. Cutler testified, the defense rested. During closing arguments, the prosecution believed they had proved their case as evidenced by Kelsey's second confession, her written confession letter, and her two phone calls to Aaron, where she apologized for killing Chloe. During the defense's closing arguments, they focused on the interrogation tactic used on Kelsey, as well as the ambiguous medical evidence in which the state's pathologist used Kelsey's second confession in her findings, as she believed it best matched the evidence. Primarily due to the conflicting medical information, the jury was unable to render a verdict in the trial. As a result, the judge declared a mistrial. Kelsey was retried a second time in October 2020. Due to COVID protocols, both parties decided to allow Judge Lucy Gammon to determine Kelsey's guilt or innocence. This is known as a bench trial. The trial concluded on October 20, 2020, with Judge Gammon taking the decision under submission pending written closing briefs by the prosecution and the defense. Judge Gaiman ultimately agreed with the state medical examiner who determined that Kelsey's second confession best matched the evidence. She found that Kelsey, in a fit of anger and frustration, took a pair of Chloe's pajama pants and used them to lasso around Chloe's neck to prevent her from running away and escaping her nap time. Judge Gaiman went on to find that Kelsey either twisted the pants or twisted her grip, causing Chloe to become wobbly and fall to the floor, shaking and kicking and gasping for air. Based on the evidence, she determined that Chloe was dropped on her bed, pushed in the chest, and told to stay in bed. Judge Gaiman believed that since Chloe's eyes were open when she left the room, that she hoped and believed that Chloe was still alive when she went to wake her after their respective naps. Based on the timing of Kelsey's two phone calls, both placed to Aaron and then 911, it is likely that Kelsey killed Chloe by accident, which would move the conviction from first degree to the lesser-included manslaughter charge. Judge Gaiman determined that the state's medical examiner made her findings based on the hemorrhages in Chloe's neck and not predominantly on Kelsey's confession, which made the findings valid. This, coupled with the fact that all of the investigating officers found Kelsey's original story to be, quote, highly improbable, Judge Gaiman agreed with the prosecution. The court concluded that Kelsey held no malice for Chloe and merely acted out of anger, frustration, and exhaustion, 
For those reasons, Judge Gaiman determined that Kelsey acted in a, quote, heat of passion, which lacked the element of malice of forethought necessary to make this a second-degree murder conviction. As a result, Judge Gaiman found Kelsey's actions best fit the requirements that needed to be met for involuntary manslaughter. Judge Gaiman signed her verdict on November 5, 2020. She set a sentencing date for Kelsey Thomas on January 5, 2021. After reviewing the sentencing recommendations, Judge Gaiman sentenced Kelsey to five years in prison. She was transferred to the Iowa Correctional Institution for Women on January 13, 2021. One day later, Kelsey Thomas was granted parole based on her time served, which began with her 2018 arrest. Was one day in prison sufficient for the loss of five-year-old Chloe Thomas? The state of Iowa believes so. The only true justice isn't possible. It's not possible to bring Chloe back and give her a full and long life filled with maternal love and nurturing that all children deserve. The best way to ensure a healthy attachment between mother and child is to help the mother develop strong parenting skills, which leads to them being able to cope and manage the inherent stress that comes with motherhood. The attachments we have with our parents or caregivers is the blueprint we use to develop our own relationship skills as adults. When this circle is broken, it can lead to a never-ending cycle of traumatic and broken relationships, including with our own children. Little Chloe Chandler was failed by her mother in life and by the justice system in death. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crime Trials. If you're interested in supporting our show, please subscribe and consider leaving us an honest review.